I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You can also turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide where the scripture that the sermon will be based on is found. Um, uh, We've been in a series the last couple of weeks uh, where we've begun to work through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church and the churches surrounding Ephesus. A few weeks ago, we worked through the letter's preface and its introduction, that is verses 1 through 2. There we found that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that is a hand-selected, personally commissioned uh, worker in the church, uh, was sent by Jesus uh, throughout the ancient Roman world to help lay the foundation of the church, both in establishing new churches, but also teaching what Jesus taught the church to know and to believe. This letter that we hold in our hands was written sometime around 55 AD. It was likely written from a Roman prison where Paul had been arrested and held. Uh, And he, he wrote from this prison in Rome to churches in the ancient city of Ephesus and to those surrounding that city in the province of Asia. Paul is here writing to Christian men, women, children, people just like us but who were in the very first century of Jesus' followers. I'm going to invite our, our, our preacher this morning, our speaker, uh, Lyndon Jost, uh, forward. I'm also going to invite Andrea, who will be reading the scripture for us. Um, uh, the Reverend Dr. Lyndon Jost uh, is here this morning. He was speaking at our conference uh, yesterday. He is uh, an assistant pastor at Grace, uh, Christ Church Toronto. Uh, he's uh, the husband to Lammy and four lovely kids. He uh, is an adjunct professor at um, Ryle Seminary, and he helps to uh, lead the Reformed House of Studies uh, at Wycliffe College. More importantly, he's been a very dear friend of mine since uh, high school. Uh, uh, He was Annie, our oldest daughter's very first babysitter, from what I can recall, along with his wife, Lammy. He's a fellow pilgrim and and, and a good friend. He stood with us at our our wedding, and he, he has a deep love for God, for God's word, for God's people. Uh, he, he, we're really glad to have him uh, with us. It's kind of a, a fulfillment of, of a hope of mine, probably since high school, that we'd be able to serve together in the Lord's Church. So I'm really glad to have him uh, share the word with us this morning. Lyndon, welcome. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me here. Uh, as Mike said, we've gone back all the way since high school. I knew Mike when he first showed up at our church, uh, our youth group. He had a couple earrings, like this, black ones. Um, and he was a good good bass guitar player. And that's kind of one of the contexts that we got to first get to know each other was playing a lot of music together. And as Mike said, uh, we've it's not just, yeah, we, we've both had the privilege of sharpening each other over the years, and Mike has been a wonderful example to me in godliness, and I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm, I should also bring greetings from the, the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination that we're, we're a part of. I'm, I'm on the provisional session, so you guys aren't here alone, and uh, the Shangers aren't here alone. There's a presbytery that's regularly praying for you, praying for this work here in Halifax, uh, praying for this city. And it's my joy to be here with you this morning to open up the word. And um, Andrea is going to read our passage for us this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the sword of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask that you would have mercy upon us this morning. We ask that you would take this word, these words, and apply them to us, to our hearts, to our lives, that you would transform us and do a powerful work by your spirit this morning through your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It was said of Alexander the Great that he was more valuable on the battlefield than 10,000 men, that his coming could change the outcome of a battle because his courage was the courage of his men. In one battle, it's reported that his army was outnumbered five to one, and still they took the victory. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In fact, In his 13-year reign, beginning at age 20, he never lost a single battle. And this was not for lack of battles. He took more ground single-handedly than anyone ever before him, as far as history tells us, conquering the whole of the Persian Empire, including large parts of Africa, Asia, India, making his one of the largest kingdoms our world has ever known. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. To fight with Alexander, with him, under his authority, was real strength. It made all the difference in the world that he was your commander. It changed the way you fought. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 6, writing, as Mike said, to one of the earliest churches, the group of Jews and Greeks, in Ephesus, is telling this group of of Christians that following Jesus, trusting in Jesus, in doing this, that they're entering into real battle. Be strong, he tells them. Put on armor, he tells them. Stand, wrestle, do battle, he says. But not physical battle, of course. This is not a battle of flesh and blood or of metal swords meeting fleshly bodies but a spiritual battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And this morning, we're going to consider together the nature of this spiritual battle 
that we find ourselves in by asking and answering two questions. Where are we and what are we to do? First, where are we? We'll find we're in a spiritual battle. Second, what are we to do? We are to get dressed for battle. So first, where are we? According to Paul, whether you know it or not, like it or not, you are in a spiritual battle. Now, maybe you hear this and you're thinking, good, we never talk about these kinds of things. You know, spiritual darkness, maybe particularly if you're from outside of the Western world, you think that the West is completely oblivious to spiritual dimensions in our world. Um, You know, you think we get so distracted by things of this life, by kind of embodied living and families and workplaces and mundane life, you know, having to do the dishes and laundry and everything else that comes with life in this world. But it's the spiritual realm that counts, not all this material stuff. You know, maybe that's, that's one way of responding to this passage. Or maybe you tend towards the opposite response. You hear these words, you know, spiritual battle, and you're not sure what to make of this. You know, talk of miracles and demon possession. It all seems quite strange to you because you tend to think that the world's problems are not spiritual, but historical and moral and economic and political. Not spiritual. But both of these responses, I believe, misses the mark. Either by over-spiritualizing life in this world or under-spiritualizing life in this world. There's two ditches to fall into because Paul, and arguably the whole of the scriptures with him, offers us a different approach. Not over-spiritualizing life so that material existence loses its importance. Not not under-spiritualizing, but instead what you might call a radically material spirituality. That this is the kind of world that we find, uh, find ourselves in. A radically uh, material, uh, material spirituality, or perhaps a radically spiritual materiality. As humans, body, soul, spirit, everything that we do is spiritual. Uh, I mean, the only place where we, t- where we hear, hear in the New Testament the word unspiritual is in a context where they're talking about doing things that are actually, like, spiritually dark. You know, um, it's not about it being just material and sp- spiritually neutral. Uh, so, there's, so there's nothing that we can do in this world that's spiritually neutral. Okay? Everything that we do in this sense is spiritual. There's a spiritual dynamic to it, a spiritual dimension. In the same way that as physical beings, we can't do anything apart from the physicality of our bodies... You know, we can't even think thoughts apart from the, the physicality of our own bodies. In the same way, as spiritual beings, we can't do anything apart from the spirituality of who we are in this world. So that as Paul says elsewhere, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do all for the glory of God. Everything as spiritual beings, as these bodily spiritual acts. And we see throughout this throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, before we even get to this passage on spiritual forces of evil, that for Paul... The spiritual life does not consist in spiritual feelings. Okay, I think that the way that many of us think about or talk about spirituality today, it's in terms of you know, a sense of the transcendent, right? spiritual feelings. Uh, but that's not, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about spiritual feelings or even a sense of the transcendent. Instead, here's what he says. He says, this is what the spiritual life looks like, okay, according to Paul. Spiritual transformation, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians, looks like reconciliation across racial and ethnic boundaries. It looks like 
in the power of Christ, those who stop living how we used to live, those who stop being deceitful, he says, those who stop stealing. In your anger, do not sin, he says. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. That's earlier in Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 27. So we could pause here. What does the spiritual battle look like for Paul? What does it look like to give the devil a foothold in our lives? Here's what it looks like. When you and your friend, or you and your spouse, when you get into a fight, you're angry with each other, and you put off bringing this to resolution, when you put off seeking reconciliation, here's where the devil is given a foothold, a spiritual battle. Paul goes on, don't let unwholesome talk come from your mouths. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with bitterness and slander. You know, when, when you're speaking uh, slanderously about somebody around you, when you're speaking in a manner that doesn't give them the respect that they are due, this is where we offend the Holy Spirit. This is where the spiritual battle takes place. Forgive each other, he tells us. But among you, there must not be even a hint of spiritual immorality. No obscene talk or coarse joking. You see, this is where the spiritual battle takes place. It's what we do with our bodies. What we do with our words. The way we treat one another around us. In our families, in our marriages, in our communities, in our church. All of this is where the spiritual battle takes place. And then Paul goes on to talk about relationships between Husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. All of this, for Paul, is what it means to be engaged in spiritual battle. Parents, when you're impatient towards your kids, when you neglect them for lesser things, this, Paul would have in view as part of this battle that we're waging in the world giving the devil a foothold in your family life. Uh, Children and youth. There are some youth here. Children and youth. When you choose as children not to respect and honor your parents, that's not just a neutral decision. You too are entering into spiritual battle. You're in the battle. And when you refuse to honor your parents, to respect them, to listen to them, there too you're giving the devil a foothold in your life. It's not morally neutral. Friends, when you're malicious, envious, mean in the way that you speak of those around you, these two are spiritually destructive acts. They are destructive to you and to the people that you speak of. And so, as we engage in our passage here in Ephesians 6, we need to recognize that Paul is not starting a brand new subject that's disconnected from everything that he's just said in the rest of the letter. He's not concluding his letter with something unrelated to what's been said earlier. It's quite the opposite. He, he concludes his letter by reframing everything that he's just said about the Christian life, but now from the perspective of the spiritual realm. So again, when he brings up wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the question is, where does this wrestling happen? You know, where does this happen? And as Paul's already said, here's where it happens. It happens when you let the sun go down on your anger. You want to talk about demonic attacks? Here's one, according to Paul. When you get angry and you sin in your anger and you're unwilling to move towards the other person, towards reconciliation. This is giving the devil a place to stand in your life. 
And you say, well, that doesn't sound demonic, right? That doesn't sound, you know, I thought this spiritual battle was a little less to do with our ordinary affairs in life. It doesn't sound very, you know, I I thought demonic stuff had to do with dreams and the stuff of devils and unseen things, you know, not, not to do with me and my actions towards other people. But again, that's not how Paul sees it. These forces are at work all the time, all around us, in the ordinary stuff of relationships, temptations, compromise. You can think about that time where, uh, where Peter, after Jesus announces his own death, and Peter says, no, 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 that's not a good idea. You know, uh, continue living, Lord. And what's Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Right? Our Lord Jesus sees in these very ordinary words, something that seems ordinary, seems like he's defending Jesus even. In these very ordinary words, what we find here is a spiritual dimension. Uh, satanic forces at work. Get behind me, Satan. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the battle we find ourselves in is indeed a spiritual battle. But it's a battle fought out here, here, in the ordinary, created reality that we call life on the earth. It's fought every mo- morning that you wake up, in the things you choose to do and not to do, in the, uh, the thoughts that you choose to dwell or not to dwell on, pray or not to pray. It's being fought out even now in the listening of God's word as God is speaking to you, to your heart, by means of his scriptures and by his spirit. It's being fought out here and now. It's fought out with how you live with your spouse, with how you live with your parents, how you treat your parents, whether you honor them or not, how you treat your children, your housemates. This life is the arena of the spiritual battle of which Paul speaks. So where are we? We're in a spiritual battle. This is our situation. Now, what are we to do? If it's the case that we are in a spiritual battle where spiritual forces of evil are at work all the time to destroy us, to tempt and to accuse us, which, by the way, is the way, that's the, the, the characteristic way in which the devil works. Right? You think about uh, the devil in the garden. He tempts, and then once we give in to our temptations, he's quick to then accuse. What are we to do in response to this? And our response, according to Paul here, is to get dressed for battle. You can look with me at verse 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How, we might ask? Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what is this strange armor we're supposed to put on here? Paul goes on to talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. What's going on here? And how does one put on a breastplate of righteousness anyway? Now, one common approach is that these armor pieces are things that we put on by faith. We put on the belt of truth by believing God more, by believing his truth, uh, the breastplate of righteousness by believing in Jesus' righteousness, and so on. And in this perspective, the armor of God is all about believing and thinking rightly. Chiefly a matter of thinking rather than doing. But this misunderstands what Paul is saying. Because instead, for Paul, the putting on of God's armor is less a matter of thinking and believing and more a matter of spirit-empowered doing. Understood this way, 
To fasten on the belt of truth is not so much a matter of believing the right things as it is about living the Christian life in truth. Uh, aletheia is the word here. Uh, living the life in truth and sincerity. It's a wholehearted commitment to love and to obey God. Put this on, Paul says. Do this. Commit yourself to the Christian life, living it in sincerity, in truth, and you will be protected. Okay, this is real spiritual armor. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness is likewise not about putting on Christ's righteousness by faith, though of course we do need to do that and we're explicitly called to do that elsewhere in, in the scriptures. But to put on the breastplate of righteousness here is a call to live righteously, to live in righteousness, to be clothed in good deeds, as we're told elsewhere, in righteous deeds. You want to know how to be protected against the wiles of the enemy? Obey God. Paul says, obey God, live a righteous life. And this is, again, real spiritual armor. Don't be immoral. Don't compromise on your sexual ethics. If she's not your wife, don't live with her. The enemy will run with these things. Don't, negle don't neglect your spouse to those who are married. Right? Don't allow resentment or bitterness to foster in your marriage. The enemy will run with this. Don't let resentments fester. Don't let sin and lust linger as though these were neutral things. Because in every act of disobedience, what Paul is saying is, you open up your life to spiritual destruction every day. Stop it, he says. Instead, put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is, again, real armor in the real world. It will protect you from a world of hurt and a world of darkness. Paul goes on to speak of the readiness given by the gospel of peace as shoes for your feet. He speaks of the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in all of these things, again, he calls us to take up a particular dimension of Christian faith and obedience. Now, some of you here, probably in a room this size, have been Christians for years and feel completely stuck in your Christian life. Stuck in complacency stuck in repetitive patterns of sin, in doubt. And let me ask you, are you putting on the armor of God? Are you putting on these things? Are you taking them up as your own clothing today? Have you set out to live the, life in, uh, uh, the Christian life in sincerity and truthfulness? Are you guarding yourself with righteous living, cutting off sin, being determined to not let things fester? getting others to hold you accountable, bringing darkness into the light? Are you putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace? Are you living a life of mission? Are you arming yourself with faith and truths of salvation, the sword of the spirit in response to the lies of the flesh when you're tempted to believe the lies of the enemy? Are you arming yourself with the truth? Are you believing what God says more than what's said in the culture, more than what the devil would have you believe? Because if not... You find yourself living, perhaps even for a long time, long periods of time, unprotected in a real battle. The devil's not messing around, and neither should we. If you're not diligent, he will do everything he can to tear your life apart. Oftentimes, it's just a decision. It can be so simple, right, where things begin to spiral downwards. Put on the armor of God. We need, we need to ask, before we end here, 
who can do this? Who can do this? This sounds, in many ways, like a great burden. Put this on, put this on, put this on. Do better, try harder, work harder. Can you? How is it going for you? Putting on truthfulness and righteousness and faith or faithfulness. Being a messenger of the gospel of peace. Wielding the sword of the Spirit. If I'm honest, there are ways in which I fail at every point in putting on these armor pieces. Who can do this? Believe it or not, the prophet Isaiah asked this very question some 2,700 years ago. Who of God's people can put this armor on? Who can do this? Here's what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 59. The Lord saw that there was no man righteous and wondered that there was no one to intercede. See, after all of God's faithfulness to his people, giving Israel a king, a land, prosperity, all that they needed, the Lord looks down on his people, his own people, and says, they've all turned away, all of them. None of God's people, not even Isaiah himself, was righteous before God. Not one, Isaiah tells us. So what does the Lord do in response? When none of, the, none of his people can do this, what does the Lord do? The text continues, Then, speaking of God, his own arm brought Israel salvation. He, the Lord, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now what's going on here? The prophet Isaiah is saying that where Israel fails to put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, we find a promise that the Lord God of Israel himself will come down and put it on himself. He goes on to say, And the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. And this, this is the good news proclaimed 700 years before Jesus came, that there is a Redeemer who came to Zion, to those in Jacob who turned from transgression, and his name is Jesus. And while you, you and I and all Israel fail to be truthful, there is this one who comes and lives a life full of truthfulness, even in the face of liars. While we fail to be messengers of the gospel of peace, this is the one who fitted himself with the shoes of the gospel to proclaim peace to those who are far off. He, the Lord Jesus, is the one who put on righteousness as a breastplate and a hel helmet of salvation on his head and the good news for all who are far off. For all of you here who are ensnared by the devil, for all weary Christians who try and fail and try again and fail again, the good news is that Jesus has armed himself for us so that in all of our efforts and failures, the final word to us is grace. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Would you pray with me?
Our Father, we've confessed our sins to you this morning, our weakness. And we've heard your word of assurance and pardon that in Christ we are forgiven and made new. And we receive this promise from you that in Christ all has been fulfilled. All righteousness offered up to the Father on our behalf. And we thank you that in Christ we're being made new. That it's in him that we have this new life. And we ask that you would help us, that you would equip us, empower us by your spirit to live faithfully as members of his own body, armed with his righteousness, that you would empower us to live this life in the midst of this present darkness, full of faith and full of joy in the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.